Good morning. Thank you for the warm welcome this morning. It's a joy to be with you and to help uh, fill the pulpit this morning. We recently had a college reunion that that Ariana, uh, my wife, organized. And so the whites were able to come over. And that's where the troubles began. Joe said, I'm going to be out of town in a few weekends. Would you mind covering the pulpit? And my first thought was, uh-oh. God just answered prayer. Because I don't do this. Uh, it used to be much more a part of my life when I was serving as a pastor. But now that I'm in uh, the marketplace, I don't do it as often. So, um, But I had just been praying uh, and faithfulness. Uh, Lord, if, if, th- if that's a gift that you want me to use uh, for the good of the church then just provide those opportunities. And then Joe asked that question. And I thought, well, I don't, I don't think I'm supposed to say no when, he, when God is clearly connecting those dots. So, again, thanks for, for having me. I want to make sure I'm not going to have any tef- technical difficulties. I really want to play with the laser, but I'm just going to make sure. Am I pointing at this guy? I'm pointing over there. There we go. So we'll start there. Good. I know that this is working. So, uh, let me pray first, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the opportunity uh, to gather with this uh, local expression of the body of Christ, grace and truth, Bible Church. Thanks for the opportunity to open your word. And I do pray uh, that you, Father, would uh, glorify the Son through the work of the Spirit this morning, uh, opening our eyes to uh, perhaps the gap that could exist in our theoretical beliefs, our doctrinal statement, and that of our practical daily life. And by opening our eyes to who you are, would you please narrow that gap, helping us to live in response to who you really are. I ask for help to be clear and for the scriptures to be self-evident as they're explained. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is March 8, 2020. That's not a surprise to any of you. But what that could mean, at least for some of us, is that we're into our New Year's resolutions. Is that a sore spot? Should I just leave now? What if we reviewed your progress against your goals concerning exercise, diet, budgeting, organization, reading, sleep, social media habits, and then the areas where you were struggling, we sought to identify some, some form of root cause, what was really going on underneath those things to keep you from making progress. And after thorough analysis, a clear answer emerges. You can't change. It just isn't possible. Fervent desire, increased resolve, whatever... It doesn't matter. Change simply isn't in your future. That's what we would call bad news. That would be just a little depressing. As it relates to the Christian life, more specifically, uh, to sinful behaviors, negative emotions, we sometimes feel this way, that change just isn't possible. For some good news, something a little more encouraging And the good news in summary is that you can change. You Can Change is actually the title of a helpful book by a pastor, an author, 
and a professor named Tim Chester. And so the, and the full title of the book is You Can Change God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behavior and Negative Emotions. And in the interest of full disclosure and giving credit where it is due, much of this sermon's material is taken from that book. And so as Joe asked me to come preach, I'm providing an excuse now. That's just a, a forewarning. He said it could be something that you've done in the past. Uh, as long as it's biblical, we're good to go. So about a year ago, uh, I was in a similar situation with an opportunity to preach uh, with not a lot of time to prepare. And so having been impacted by this book, I thought, you know what, maybe I can do something from that. But I just want to call attention to that another uh, brother has labored, created a book, and I'm borrowing heavily. Some of the wording, particularly the four points on the back of your program, are uh, directly from his book. So some of his work I'll be quoting, some of it synthesized. But the good news is that in Christ, because of the gospel, we can change. In fact, change is inseparable from the gospel because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at work to renew us in the image of God. And the author, Tim Chester, captures this Trinitarian work of transformation as follows. And this is pretty encouraging the way he frames this. He says, the Father is intimately involved in our lives so that our circumstances train us in godliness. The Son has set us free from both the penalty and the power of sin so that we now live under the reign of grace. The Spirit gives us a new attitude towards sin and a new power to change. So with that good news as our foundation, there's a number of directions we could go. There's a lot that we could talk about. When you have uh, Father, Son, and Spirit at work for our chain to His likeness, we could talk about a lot of things, but we'll go in a particular direction. But just to highlight some of the questions that we could ask in response to and these are questions that the book highlights. You could ask, how would you specifically like to change? Why would you like to change? What's the motivation going on there? How are you actually going to change? When do you struggle? What desires do you need to turn from? What stops you from changing? What strategies do you need to put in place to reinforce faith and repentance? How can we support one another in change, the community aspect, body life? And are you ready for a lifetime of daily change? All of those questions would be great ones to answer, but this morning we're going to focus on one particular question, and that is this. What truths do you need to turn to? In order to change, what truths do you need to turn to? This morning's big idea or the main point. There it is. Sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. A gap between what we believe in theory and what we believe in practice. Change requires narrowing the gap of unbelief. Let me read that again. If I'm popping and I need tape, come on up, David, and we'll get all squared away. Could be the, could be the beard. Big idea, one more time, restated. Sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. A gap between what we believe in theory, it's our doctrinal statement, those things, yes, I believe that, and what we believe in practice on an everyday basis, day in, day out, in the heat of the moment. Change requires 
narrowing the gap of unbelief. So Timster, the author, commenting on Romans 1 and Ephesians 4, he says this, Humanity's problem is futile thinking, darkened understanding, and ignorant hearts. This is the cause of indulgence, impurity, and lust. We sin because we believe the lie that we are better off without God, that His rule is oppressive, that we will be free without Him, that God. This is true of every sin and every negative emotion. In light of this connection between sin and unbelief, we have to learn to speak truth to ourselves. And if the focus of this sermon were the community aspect, speaking truth to one another. But this morning we're talking about this inner battle. So perhaps you've heard the following quote a million times. It's from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you've not heard a million, here's one step closer to that. And he says these helpful words, and he's, he's reflecting on Psalm 42. You're saying, yeah, this was quoted last week. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning or after coffee. You have not originated them, but there they are, talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. So he's reflecting on the psalm in Psalm 42. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And that's how he thinks about Psalm 42. But if this is true, if we need to learn how to talk to ourselves, what should we say? What we'll comes to our own hearts? And that will be the focus this morning. I want to cover four life-changing truths that we should learn to speak to ourselves. And the four life-changing truths, they should be up on this screen. Oh, there it is. That's, that's the title slide. And maybe we'll get all of them together. No. Let's do this. Four life-changing truths. Uh, are the four points of your outline. And if we look at all of them, the first one is this. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Number two, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Now, how does he come up with those four truths? Where do they come from? And he connects them to Psalm 62, which was why that was the scripture reading for this morning. And in verse, verses 11 and 12, there's just this little snippet in Psalm 62. It goes as follows. God has spoken. Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So, power belongs to God. And that points to the first two truths. God's greatness and glory. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Where we get God's goodness and His grace, which we'll get in the third and fourth points. 
Now, clearly, these aren't all the truths we need to know about God, but they are certainly a helpful starting point for addressing major areas of unbelief that yield a whole array of sinful behavior. So, if nothing else, if, if maybe the four G's are a little too cute for you, if nothing else, this be an opportunity to connect the dots between what we and how we live our lives. It's helpful to start connecting the dots that our beliefs have consequences in the way we live. So again, the big idea, sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. A gap between what we believe in theory and what we believe in practice. And change requires knowing the gap of unbelief. So let's consider these four life-changing truths of God's greatness, glory, goodness, and grace. So the first one. There we are. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Now the emphasis here in, in God being great isn't that He's a swell guy. Isn't God great? No, it's that He's control. In more theological terms, we say that God is sovereign. And Tim Chester, the author, he shares some of his own experience when he says we often associate the sovereignty of God with theological debates. Isn't that the case? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? And then out of that can flow a whole host of debates. His quote continues, But for all of us, it's a daily practical choice. For me, author speaking, the issue is escapism. I have to choose between a fantasy in which I'm sovereign and the real world in which God is sovereign. Between my false sovereignty and God's Real sovereignty. When I feel like running away, I have to choose to find refuge in God. End quote. If God is great or sovereign, then we don't have to be in control. If God is not, then we might want to figure out how to get in control. If God is not in control, then it makes sense that we should worry, be irritable, anxious, and experience frustration and anger on a regular basis. So to illustrate this, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 4. We'll be bouncing around to a few different passages today. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. This is a common story that I'm sure you're familiar with. It illustrates the point well. Mark, thir- Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we... And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? We're reading this text in support of our first point, that God is great, 
so we don't have to be in control. But does it actually apply here? Experienced fishermen have encountered a storm at sea such that they appear to be fearful for their lives. And even though Jesus doesn't use the exact words, he is essentially saying, or is he, God is great, brothers. You don't have to be in control. So is this, a, is this an appropriate statement? Would Jesus say that to the disciples? In short, I think the answer is yes. When Jesus asks them about being afraid, considering what does that word afraid mean, the best case scenario is that he's asking about their timidity. He's asking about their cowardice. And did you know what Jesus, did you notice what Jesus contrasts with fear? It's faith. It seems that Jesus is making a connection between unbelief and fear. See, we're saying sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. And Jesus doesn't want them to change their belief about the relative danger of a boat filling with water. That's not what he's, he's not trying to change that assessment. Jesus wants them to believe that he, God in the flesh, is great, he's powerful, he's sovereign, he's in control. So, as we move this toward us, we may not be concerned about perishing at sea, but we may have our own set of questions for Jesus. Teacher, do you not care that my boss... I'll let you fill in the blank. Lord, do you not care that my child... How would you end that sentence? God, do you not care that my bank account... Master, do you not care that coronavirus is getting uncomfortably close to home? As these questions arise, we need to speak the truth to ourselves. And if you take this story from Mark into the context of the whole book of Mark, here's how I think Mark, the author, would want you to begin to read and to speak to yourself. You would say to yourself in the context of the whole book of Mark, of course he cares for me. He whom the wind and sea obeys suffered the cross for me. Surely he could have demonstrated his greatness, exercising his control to avoid death, but he did no such thing. And we can trust in his resurrection greatness, leaving control in his capable, caring, nail-pierced hands. So in what area of life do you seemingly have to be in control? And how do you act when you're not in control? Are you irritable? Domineering? Manipulative, anxious? What would it like to believe that God is great in such a way that you begin to let go of that need to be in control? God is great, so we don't have to be in control. But sometimes it isn't circumstances that we fear, but it's people. And that brings us to our next point. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. What Scripture calls the fear of man. And the fear of man has to do with craving the approval of others, needing the acceptance of a particular person or group, and fearing rejection of those whose opinion 
matters. Kids, this is at the heart of what we call peer pressure. The Bible calls it the fear of man. And I'll let you in on just this little secret. Adults struggle with the very same issue. We see this dynamic or this naming of the fear of man in Proverbs 29-25. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You can hear the contrast. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And notice how fear of man is contrasted with trusting in the Lord. So the fear of man would seem to be rooted in not trusting, in unbelief. Because as we've been saying, sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. That was Proverbs 29.5. So, in picking a scripture to help illustrate this point, I, I want to turn us to one of the most probably devastating and explicit examples of peer pressure or the fear of man that can be found, and it's in John's Gospel. section, John 12, and Jesus, He's headed to the cross. So, these are among His very last interactions with people, or I should say, with the general public. From here, He's going to be focusing on His disciples. We know in chapter 13, He's going to, go, he's going to focus there. We're going to get the upper room discourse. So, this is how He ends His interactions with the general public. So I'll read 35 to 37, set a little context, and then uh, read 42 and 43. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light. You may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And then we get John's commentary on the situation. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Nevertheless, me, even of the authorities, believed in him. That, that's good. That's good. There's a lot of people that didn't believe in him. But there was a group of people, even the authorities, that did. That sounds good. Except John continues. So nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the cool club. Why would they do that? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Why in the world would they do that? Why would they risk so much eternal life for so little acceptance among peers? John gives the answer, as we've read in 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They feared man more than God. Remember, sinful acts always have their origin 
in some form of unbelief. And the unbelief at play here is concerning God's glory. So what's the answer to this problem? Well, actually, if we go back to our previous text, Mark 4, the disciples actually give us a clue. You see, they start with a fear of their circumstances with an even greater fear of God. Because it says, And they were filled with great fear after Jesus spoke, calmed the sea and the wind. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey them? So in short order, relatively collapsed period of time, they arrived at a more accurate picture of God. The answer for them, therefore, and for us in fixing this fear of man problem is to have a bigger view of God. God must become weightier. Glory is the biblical word for weight. So, God must become weightier. In the scales of your mind, God must outweigh man. There's a great reference in Psalm 62, which we read this morning. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. So, we need a bigger view of God. God must be weightier. His opinion weightier in our minds than that of man. So, how do we, how do, we do that? How does one go about acquiring a bigger view? view of God. Well, we could invite Jesus on a deep sea fishing trip on a stormy day, but that may not be realistic. So even though even though I sat tongue in cheek, it really does shine a light on the fact that narrowing the gap of unbelief, the gap between what we believe in theory and what we believe in practice, is a supernatural work of God. And God enlarges our view of Him. He becomes weightier not necessarily by recreating the miraculous events of Scripture, like calming the sea, but by using those truths recorded in Scripture to shape us. God has given us Scripture where He is most clearly revealed as glorious. So, as much as it sounds like the repeat Sunday school answer, that's where we have to take our hearts to learn. So God becomes weightier, more glorious in our minds and hearts bit by bit as we soak in the Scriptures. And it usually doesn't happen all at once. It happens over time. And I'm sure you all have testimonies of how it can be painfully slow at times, but progress can be made nonetheless. So a few questions. Who are you fearing more than God? Whose approval and acceptance is more important than God's? Now, I know that what the right answer is, we all do, but in practice, whose approval seems to be more important than God's? And what behaviors and emotions do you experience when you notice anger, compromise, depression, withdrawal? What is it? And what would it look like in your life to believe that God is gracious, excuse me, God is glorious in such a way that you could begin to, to let go of others' approval in exchange for God's, which you already have in Christ. So, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. We're halfway through. We've looked at God's greatness and His glory, which is connected to 
that statement, power belongs to God in Psalm 62. And now we consider God's goodness and grace because that text, Psalm 62, says that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So from steadfast love, we're getting His goodness and His graciousness. So the third life transforming truth is this. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. In in this point, we're going to consider where we find ultimately our satisfaction. Now, if you're anything like me, perhaps you've had that experience. Maybe, maybe it's Scripture. Maybe it's a book about Scripture. But you're reading a passage from a book and it's, it strikes you so significantly, it has such a profound impact on your thinking that perhaps you can visualize where you were sitting when you read it or where it is to this day on the page of that book. And I have one of those experiences. It's reading a book. It's called Future Grace. It was probably 1999 by this guy named John Piper. It's the first book of his I ever had. And I can picture on the page where I did the highlighting because this was totally new for me. And said this amazing statement. He says, Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. The promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself. And that's what this third G truth is good. So we don't have to look elsewhere. The emphasis here is that God, not sin, is ultimately satisfying. So, Let's consider this dynamic of believing in the satisfying goodness of God via the life of Moses. Not necessarily back in an Old Testament passage, but in Hebrews chapter 11, where various saints from the Old Testament are being commended for their faith. And what seems to be the case, even though the text doesn't use all these words exactly, it seems to be that Moses understood that God is good. So I don't have to look elsewhere. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith, when he was grown up, I'm sorry, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. To be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. How did Moses do that? How do you make such a noble exchange, a comfortable, easy, pleasure-filled life, for something much, much more difficult. Well, first, he called sin's bluff. That is, he could see through the empty promise of sin. Sin was holding out a promise, and by faith, he could see through it. He could see that it was a lie, that 
sin would never deliver the happiness that it was promising. The text says he chose not to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He didn't deny there was no pleasure to be had. Of course there was. What he did deny, perhaps as he spoke to his own heart, what he did deny was that the pleasure wouldn't last and that it doesn't compare to Christ. He chose to focus on the pleasure that does last, the reward, as it's referred to in the text. That is, eternity with Christ in which there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Tim Chester helpfully says it this way. He says, The invitation of the Bible is not to dreary abstinence. If that's your understanding of Christianity, there's work to be done. The invitation of the Bible is not to dreary abstinence. It's a call to find in God that which truly satisfies. It's believing that we find lasting fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, and identity in knowing God and nowhere else. Whatever sin offers, God offers more. For God offers us Himself. God isn't just good, He's better. Better than anything else. And the true source of all joy. End quote. So by way of application, where are you looking for satisfaction? What exactly is the elsewhere that you're looking to? Maybe it's something explicitly forbidden in Scripture, or perhaps it's, it's a good thing that's just become too important to you. What would it look like to begin to believe that God is good, begin to find satisfaction in Him rather than elsewhere? God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And now for the final life-changing truth, the last point in your notes. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. If we think about the parable known as the prodigal son in Luke 15, we have a story of two brothers. And of course, it's the younger brother who's the prodigal. And if there was a G-truth that he needed, if we're to help him out, give him a truth to speak to his heart, he probably needed the third G-truth. He probably needed to hear, God is good, so I don't need to look elsewhere. But what about the older brother? The one who didn't go off and waste his inheritance? Well, the older brother probably needs this fourth truth. He probably needs to believe that God is gracious so he doesn't have to prove himself. It appears that the older brother didn't have much room for his father's graciousness because grace leaves no room for merit which the older brother thought he had amassed a good amount of. So as we read through this text, Luke 15, 25-32, we're looking at the older brother not the younger brother's response. In the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, 
your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Sounds like good news. Not to the older brother. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served, slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was lost and is found. This is what it sounds like, the older brother. This is what it sounds like when God's grace is more theory than reality. This is how you talk when you're living under the weight of having to prove yourself to God or to others. Tim Chester helpfully categorizes the older brother's behavior under four things. And consider your own life to see if any of these symptoms are showing up. So the four categories, restless anger, joyless duty, anxious performance, and proud comparisons. First, restless anger. The text says he was angry and refused to go in. The older brother's hard work seems to go unnoticed while his wealth-squandering brother is honored. That's just scandalous. I've been here working the whole time, and this guy gets the party. That's not fair. Joyless duty. He says to his father, I've been slaving for you. Those are strong words. The brother seems to characterize his service to his father as drudgery. Not that way if it's not for grace. Service can be drudgery if we're trying to earn something. Anxious performance. I never disobeyed, he said. The older brother points to his performance, seemingly a flawless performance, as the basis for which he should be honored. There's no room for grace. And then proud comparisons. This son of yours... The older brother elevates himself by citing his superiority in comparison to his sinful brother. So when you combine restless anger, joyless duty, anxious performance, and proud comparisons, when you're in that space because the grace of God just isn't a reality for you, that doesn't sound all that much better than the place in which the younger brother found himself. Early in the text, it says this about the younger brother. After all the money's gone and a famine hits the land, he says, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. That's miserable, but I don't know that I would call that much worse than being in that place of anger, joyless duty, anxiety around your own performance, and having to compare yourself to others. So a different author, Richard Lovelace, says this. Christians who are no longer sure 
that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches of the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. If you're not quite sure that God loves and accepts you, and you think that maybe you have to perform to get God to like you, that's a tenuous and insecure place. So a few questions for us. How have you felt compelled to prove yourself to others? In what ways do you feel like you must form spiritually for God or else? And what would it look like to begin to believe that God is gracious in such a way that you could begin to rest in the finished work of Christ? God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. So in summary... Sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. A gap between what we believe in theory and what we believe in requires narrowing the gap of unbelief. And when we consider that power belongs to God, He's great and He's glorious, and that to God belongs steadfast love, He's good and gracious, when we believe those things and, the, and what we believe in daily life matches up our doctrinal statement says, our lives will manifest themselves in a certain way. We won't have to be in control. We don't have to fear others. We don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. We don't have to prove ourselves. So to that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you for, first and foremost, who you are. You are the God to whom belongs power and steadfast love. And we're thankful, Lord, that those aren't just realities that exist on paper or in a book or in a doctrinal statement. They are bedrock truths, life-changing truths that when believed in practice result in a changed life. So, Lord, we, would, we pray that you might expose the areas where there's unbelief as manifest in sinful behavior, negative emotions. And you'd help us not to try to just change, but to be renewed in faith around you. God, let all change be done in light of the Gospel. We're not trying to earn anything that flows out of the Gospel because you have purchased for us pardon. You've given us a new heart. You've given us new desires, new attitudes, and the Spirit's power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So do the work in our midst so that we might reflect truth to the people around us, at work, our neighbors, and our schools, our athletic teams. And God, we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.